Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Chrome Mox, Mox Opal, Mox Diamond, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thorabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming. Hello, and welcome to episode 101 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Legacy's new bow master. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben Yu, joined by... I'm Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. Shout out to our new Patreon subscribers since the last episode. We've got Bill, Tim, Audie, Eric, John, Joe, Alden, Milan Mosu, and Constantine. Shout out to all of you. That was a long list. I appreciate you all. And as always, if you're listening to this, that means you like it. And to keep it on the air, maybe join the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash eternal glory. Shout out to all of you. If you join, you get to hear me getting roasted in the pre-show today. And uh, yeah, we, is, we went at it. It is savage. We went at him. It's for sure. If you're interested in running an event or want your LGS to do so, but are worried about the logistics of it, check out Eminence Gaming's Command Tower software. You can create and manage four-player or 1v1 tournaments easily, and its unique pairing system ensures you don't get paired against the same players multiple times. Visit eminence.events for details. Why don't we hop on in and talk about the hot cards from the latest Lord of the Rings set, Tales of Middle-Earth. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, queuing into legacy. You put Brainstorm on the stack. And if you don't keep up removal, there's no knowing how bad you'll be blown out. Obviously, that sage advice from Gandalf to Frodo was about Orcish Bowmasters, the title of this episode, and also, very obviously, the card that Legacy players are talking about right now. Do we still need to read this thing at this point, or are we assuming that people know and they've been BTFO'd enough times? The card is new enough that we should should probably read it. Um, This card is... Probably format changing in one way or another, but we'll dig into that in a second. It's one in a black for a 1-1 Orc Archer with Flash when it enters the battlefield and whenever an opponent draws a card, except for the first one they draw in each one of their draw steps, Orcish Bowmasters deals one damage to any target, and then you amass Orcs one. Long story short, what that last part means is you essentially get a 1-1 token and any other time you would amass Orcs one, you get to kind of add a counter to that token, and your uh, orcs get one bigger. Or if you don't have orcs, you'll start again at a 1-1. Right. So the the creature, you never get a second or third orc army. You get a bigger and bigger orc army, which is an important thing to understand if you're not familiar with a mass. That's a pretty unique mechanic. It was only in one set before this one. But okay, so let's start to break this thing down. Import, the really important part of Orcish Bowmasters is that it's an enters the battlefield ability as well as a ability that affects when your opponent draws extra cards. Even without the draw extra cards bit, this is one of the best Flame Tongue Cavus ever printed. Two mana. It's only one damage, but things have one toughness in this format. It's picking off a Delver, p- finishing off a Teferi, uh, finishing off a Narset, uh, going face, uh, Cephalid Illusionist, Nomads and Core, get out of here, all sorts of things that have one toughness or one loyalty or end up on one loyalty. And that's just on arrival. Uh, if this is in response to a brainstorm, you're taking four right away. Or it can spread out, which is even worse, because this is four instances of draw a card. Well, the ETB, then three instances of draw a card. Each one can go to a different place. So your Narset, your Teferi, your Fairy Mastermind, and your uh, Staff of the Storyteller token are all dead. Beep, boop, boop, bop. See you later. And I have five power in play. It's insane. Uh, So that's just, I I think this card would be playable without the draw extra cards bonus. And I think this card would be playable with the draw extra cards bonus, but without the ETB. 
but as it was printed we just get them all and it's completely nuts basically all i've been doing for the past 24 hours is recording with orcish bowmasters i've played four different leagues across multiple formats and the card is just very very impressive especially in blue mirrors where your opponent is realistically going to trigger its ability a lot of creatures that are in blue decks are naturally x ones so when i think about creatures in blue decks in legacy i'm thinking about ice fang Kowattle. i'm thinking about snapcaster mage fairy mastermind baleful strix uh, occasionally something like dark confidant as well orcish bowmasters often kills a creature while giving you two bodies that allows you to kind of go wide of a single blocker in some instances or when you play this mid combat you ping kill one thing double block a 2-2 that your opponent is playing kill that too it can often be a two for one removal spell at flash for two mana this card is very good even when you get no extra draw value and when you do get those extra draw values, it becomes silly incredibly quickly. Yeah, the way it lines up against things that we have built into our muscle memory that, oh, this is a two for one, like Baleful Strix and Ice Fang Quaddle, those are probably the most egregious things going on. I just recorded a Grixis deck today, and it's very much Baleful Strix centric gameplay. And let me tell you about Orcish Bowmasters versus Baleful Strix. Kills the one that you already played on arrival. Kills the one that's on the stack once it resolves and they draw another card. They are left with three power hanging out afterwards to, to start beating you back. It's insane how this lines up against things that we've taken for granted for so long. A card like Baleful Strix, especially Grixis, is already kind of becoming the default tempo shell. I, I don't know if it's still playing Delver, that remains to be seen, but Dragon's Ray Channeler for sure. Orcish Bowmasters, Merktide Regent. That's coming out. That solves that. What do I do about this pesky death touch 1-1 one, one between me and my opponent's life total? You used to have to spend a lightning bolt on that or counter it on the way down. Now you just get it for free while adding to the board. Pretty bonkers what the problems are that this thing solves. If you're wondering if this card is in Legacy yet, like are people actually playing it? The answer is a resounding yes. Look at any of the recent results over the last week and a half to two weeks. I was in the room Saturday, the first day that Orcish Bowmaster was legally allowed to be played. I guess theoretically, if you played on a pre-release Friday, you could have played it then. But I was in the room and all around me throughout the entire day, Orcish Bowmasters entering the battlefield, uh, killing off Narsets and other creatures. And the players that couldn't get them for Saturdays, for Saturday's event definitely had them for Sunday. The room was flooded with them Sunday. And you saw people that were playing Is It Delver on Saturday playing Grixis Delver on Sunday. And there's two copies in the top eight playing Orcish Bowmasters. And then if you look at the challenge results from the past weekend, Grixis Delver, once again, super successful, playing black primarily for Orcish Bowmasters, and then support cards for things like Snuff Out or Thought Seize or whatever. But we found a reason for Delver now to splash a third color again. It's not just red cards and counter magic. Yeah, Delver was in sort of an identity crisis. We've seen it dipping into rug. I've seen more Tarmogwifts in plays since the EI ban than I've seen for two years before that. Minsk and Boo is an option. People have Loam in their sideboard. But I think this is just going to dethrone all of that. And this is very clearly a card that is great on offense and great on defense and just costs two and has flash and you know keep checking boxes. This fits all the spots that a deck like that wants to fit. One thing that I think needs to happen is people need to reconsider some heuristics that they've developed over the last few years, myself included. I recorded the latest Epic Swarm video the second I got home from Star City Games Baltimore. First round, I get paired into Bowmasters. I literally talk about it, and then I misplay directly into it twice. And I was just like, I played so poorly this round, but I'm just so used to playing these play patterns that I've developed over the last decade or so. And at the event, you saw people cutting things like Spell Pierce from their main deck because traditionally Spell Pierce is an amazing card in Legacy. It hits to Fairy, hits Swords to Plowshares, Prismatic Ending, all these things that are super important. Take a wild guess what it doesn't hit. Orcish Bowmasters. So on that note, I'm just going to briefly interject because I fully agree what you're saying. Similarly, Snuff Out, which was almost a universal removal spell two weeks ago, now misses one of the central cards of the format, and it's a huge deal. I believe that the 
for lack of a better term, the scam decks, the grief reanimate decks, and the orcish bowmaster decks are going to continue to rise. Before the event and the event being Baltimore, that deck was already rising. I think now we're seeing a lot more reasons to play black. And if you're a magic online user that happens to be on Twitter, you would have seen threads from people claiming that black was unplayable for the previous six months before that. And it seems like black is back. Uh, we truly have a reason to be playing the color again. It's not just Plague Engineer or Bust. And I think that is a interesting thing that makes Legacy more dynamic and unique because there's more decisions to be made now in gameplay and deck building. Like Veil of Summer just became a playable card again. And now that's another card people have to respect. Yeah, Veil of Summer was on my radar. Dress Down is pretty solid again. Uh, you can dress down and then spend a turn of cantripping for free under any number of bowmasters. You can dress down the bowmaster on the way in. They don't get an army. They don't get a ping. That card is has always been solid. I think all the mid-range blue decks are kind of making room for two or three copies across the 75. And a card you just mentioned is one that's high on my radar, which is Plague Engineer. Plague Engineer on Orc wipes out the army and the bowmaster, and they'll never get a second trigger out of it because it's already dead. And it's black, and if you're playing Bowmasters, you're in the colors anyway. And the best answer to a Bowmaster is a Bowmaster, but I'd take a Plague Engineer in a pinch. And I, I think these black tempo, black mid-range mirrors are going to start to become a thing. And we may end up back in the space where Plague Engineer was a top five legacy played creature. Remember that from two years ago? That was a thing. We might end up back there. Oh, I'm... Look, I know where we're going. I've already tweeted out the picture of Orcish Bowmasters next to Renin 6. I've been in this hell before. Put put away your X1 creatures for a little while. It's not going to be a safe place out there for them. They're going to have a bad time. I hope that the point you just made is that X1s aren't safe and not Orcish Bowmasters needs to be banned alongside Renin 6 because I think it's way too early for that conversation. Oh, it and absolutely. If we're going to have it, I disagree with it because let me spend like one second on this because obviously magic discourse is profoundly stupid a lot of the time and orcas bowmasters off the spoiler before anyone had a put a finger on a single physical magic card edh community casual variety the cedh community and legacy community i saw calling for bans on this card and just shut up chill out take a breath let's play with the card i i don't think a flame tongue cavu is going to get banned but I mean, let's just chill. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it is Dreadhorde Arcanist come again in different form, or maybe it's just kind of an efficient removal spell and that we got a plan for. But regardless of that, I'm going to play with it and I'm not going to talk about bans and I'm going to ignore anyone who does. And that's how I feel about that. Yeah. So let's talk about it versus creature decks for a minute. So it is very good against creature decks. Like let's, let's start there. But against a non-blue non creature deck that isn't going to draw cards, it has an ETB trigger and then it's two different 1-1s and that's all that you get out of that card. I played a match against Death and Taxes, for example, where I played a turn two Orcish Bowmasters. It never triggered another time throughout the rest of the game. They didn't play an X1 the rest of the game and I died. Orcish Bowmasters didn't do anything and like was not worth my time to play in that particular game. So while it is strong against creature decks, Unless they're, you know, doing Phyrexian Dragon Engine, uh, Fable of the Mirror Breakers, Middle Mode, unless they're drawing some other cards in some way, a lot of times, like, Orcish Bowmasters is just not insane in a vacuum. Like, it is batshit crazy in a blue mirror, but against a person with a bunch of basic lands of some color, it's not gonna be that good. I was hanging around a lot of the Cephalid Breakfast Cabal when I was at Baltimore, and the consensus was, this card doesn't matter, we're just going to Orm Shen win. That's something you can choose to believe, uh, and I do think that is something that can happen. But I do think that Orcish Bowmasters is another card that you are forced to play around, and it's not just, oh, it's two-mana Doomblade, but it's another thing you have to think about when you're constructing your combo turn. And it's just... When you eventually add in enough things, at some point, something is going to tip the scales in some place or another. Like, you choose to play around Orcish Bowmasters, perhaps you lose to, I don't know, some other card, Fairy Macabre. I don't know the exact situation. But 
hypothetically, it could tip the scales there. But also, if you're just now on the, I'll wait until I can orange shit into the win, you're not waiting until turn four. You gave that person playing Orcish Bowmasters more time to develop. And it's just, that's what I mean by it's another thing to tip the scales. Even if it doesn't directly kill your Cephalid Illusionist or Nomads in core, I think it is just another problem for these creature combo decks. Over the weekend, Max Carini, aka Wonder Pro, top eight of the challenge on Doomsday. And... He recognized that, hey, this doesn't kill any creatures in my deck. I mean, theoretically, you can kill a Thassa's Oracle, I guess. But ultimately, the damage to a player matters more. And if you can resolve Doomsday before Orcish Bowmasters, it just doesn't matter. So Max beat up on a ton of people playing Bowmasters on the weekend. And I think it might not be as good in every single matchup as some of the hype said, but I do think it's just another thing that people have to force to think about. And that's also like the more interesting part to me. Yeah. There's two things about the Cephalid breakfast, one directly about that deck and one broadly about cards in that deck. Cephalid breakfast is already built to beat lightning bolt and sword supply shares, which are more efficient at doing the thing Bowmaster does. If we're talking about Bowmaster in terms of a removal spell, uh, but you do have to worry about like floating a nomad out there and then pondering on a subsequent turn. So there's a little texture there. I'm not super worried about Bowmasters against breakfast. I'm interested how it goes in breakfast. If it does, is that a sideboard you? Cause that's something we want all of those. I'm not going to talk about breakfast for 10 minutes here, but one thing that is part of the, that matchup, the Cephalid breakfast versus Bowmasters is Teferi time raveler, who is one of your orms chants. And generally, a play pattern of that deck is resolve a turn three Teferi, bounce whatever's threatening you or the Teferi, untap and win. And Teferi lines up extremely poorly against Bowmasters because it flashes in in response, leaves two 1-1 bodies behind. If you bounce the army, the Bowmaster can attack the Teferi. Uh, if, it, uh, if you bounce the army, they amass another army right away because you just drew a card and killed. It's even worse than that. If you bounce the Bowmaster, the army finishes off the Teferi. All you can really do at that point is plus Teferi and hope they don't have a Lightning Bolt, or they didn't have any other thing in play before that point. It Teferi is not safe. Teferi and Narset, I think, are going to be two of our biggest casualties to Bowmaster in this new format. I think new heuristics forming about like how you play cards is going to be very interesting. So, for example, you know, it's turn two, you're on the play. Do you sorcery speed your oak your bowmasters so that you always catch the cantrips off it, but expose it to say a sorcery speed removal spell like prismatic ending, or do you hold it up trying to catch say a brainstorm, knowing that if you want to use your mana for the turn, you cast that end of turn, but then your opponent can safely cast a brainstorm without triggering orc orcish bowmasters. I think there's a lot of like Avon mind sensor opposition agent heuristics that are now going to get applied to a two mana card instead of a three mana card there's also a layer to orcish bowmasters that will be determined over time and affected by context whether it's an upside or a downside the card does not stop your opponent from playing their cards it's not hall breacher it's not opposition agent it's not even mind sensor it just disincentivizes them to do it it punishes them for doing it Oh, this is closer to something like Archivist of Ogma, or uh, that's the best example I can think of, Archivist of Ogma, or something that like when your opponent does X, you gain X advantage. It's kind of like that, where if you bowmaster somebody uh, like the Epic Storm, for example, and they're like, whatever, brainstorm, ponder, crack a bobble, like, you're not playing ponder anymore, whatever, but it, you know what I mean? Like some combo deck, brainstorm, ponder, okay, fine, uh, Nas from 11. And you're still dead. Uh, those decks can just outmuscle it, where a Hall Breacher would have actually stopped that whole line from happening, which is a downside in that case. But then there's the upside of rather than your opponent being like, well, can't cast this Ponder into Hall Breacher, they're like, well, it's not getting better. Ponder. And then you ping them for one and grow your army. And now your clock is rolling. So it's kind of an interesting texture of when do I just shove through this thing versus when do I try to play around it? which is a texture we've seen recently with the addition of Fairy Mastermind, which is a card that I've been shoving into Sylvan libraries like crazy, and then just daring the green player, like, how do you want to play this? Do you want to not draw cards, or do you not want to give me cards? Bowmaster is closer to Mastermind. I guess that's the analog I was looking for. Closer to Mastermind than it is to Hull Breacher. 
Brian, I'm glad that you brought up the point in that you're still allowed to do or still allowed to take the action. You're, like it's a choice that you can make. I talked about how in my storm video, how I needed a change in my heuristics. I was in a spot where my opponent flashed in a bowmaster, and I was like, should I fetch and brainstorm here knowing that I lose to wasteland? And then I was like, ah, I don't want to give them four damage and a body. So I did it in response. I would have won that game if I just waited until their end step and cast Brainstorm instead of getting Wasteland dazed out of the game. Uh, and it's a wrong decision that I made because I was playing Afraid. And then the rest of the video, I took the Brian Koval approach of just like play conservative, make good choices, be disciplined, and then I won every other match. Uh, so I let the new card get on my own head a little bit when, you know, I could have just taken that extra little bit of damage on their end step and ultimately had won that game. So... Don't make irrational decisions because Bowmaster is like the big new scary card. You can just take a little bit of damage to play more safely and then untap, remove it, or do whatever your game plan is. Right. It's not the the local government shutting down your restaurant. It's the uh, local racketeering uh, organized crime shaking you down to do business. Like That's what this is. You can still run your restaurant, but you got to pay protection. You're still open for business, though. All right, speaking of organized crime, so so far we've talked about Orcish Bowmasters in a fair way, but please note that this can be part of a combo deck as well uh, with something like Wheel Effects. I just recorded a vintage league where I played like Time Twister and Wheel of Fortune with Bowmasters and Shouldered the Apocalypse. And let me tell you, when you get seven of those triggers at once, it is delicious. I got to obliterate a mono-white player I took two three threes out of play and pinged them for one and then crashed in with a stupid large army uh, for what was a game's worth of interaction in one card. Yeah, that is pretty spicy. And I'm glad you specified vintage because something I want to remind everyone, which we all recognized when Shouldred was printed, but uh, it's worth repeating, the best wheel in legacy or at least the most fair wheel in legacy the one you don't have to put lion's eye diamond in your deck to cast does not work with orcish bowmasters i'm talking about days undoing it ends the turn as part of its resolution which will delete all the triggers that haven't gone on the stack yet as the turn ends immediately and you don't get an army you don't get to ping your opponent for seven an important thing to keep in mind if you're in some esper days undoing deck with teferi and you really want to rub in the fact that you're undoing the day and in your opponent's upkeep with a Teferi, that works. But keep in mind, if you're not doing the work to make Echo of Eons work, there's not that many good wheels. And I don't I don't know what world it would take for like Winds of Change, which is one red and both players wheel their hands uh, for what they have. Maybe there's some turbo nonsense, but I don't think so. You're literally giving away my video for next week, Brian. It's Whatever, Echo of Eons, Wheel of Change. Or Winds of Change, my This bad. is the pod. Yep, this is the pod. I think that people will try Winds of Change. I'm sure it'll be sent to me to play on my channel. Bryant's already doing it. That's the sort of memory that we can expect for a little while, but the, the genuine time twister that we get in Days Undoing does not work the way that we'd like it to with this card. I did see on Twitter that some people were sharing a card that I've cast a lot in my life, which is Diminishing Returns. And the overall response was, did you know that your opponent gets to choose how many cards they draw? me this entire time going yes yes i did know that because you have to announce and then you draw all those cards so you can't draw six and go i won't draw seven or you can't draw three and then go eh, i'll stop you either choose some number between zero and seven from the get-go you draw that many cards off diminishing returns so i wouldn't recommend diminishing returns in your orcish bowmaster shield red deck would you say the returns are diminishing crickets are the correct response all right phil what were you gonna say Okay, a quick note for the brewers out there. There is a little bit of awkwardness if you end up trying to build an Echo of Eons, like Hull Breacher Orcish Bowmaster deck, as a Hull Breacher will prevent the draws, so Orcish Bowmaster will not trigger. Note that if you're casting an Echo of Eons with a Hull Breacher in play and you're still just getting seven cards and seven treasures and your opponent gets a fat lot of nothing, you're still doing okay, so be aware of that. All right, are we ready to move on to card number two? There's other cards. Um, yeah, uh, you know, one or one or one or two. Yeah, there's actually a few. I was impressed. I've been impressed with this set, just as a an aside, apropos of uh, the the joke that I just made. But this uh, 
there's been a number of dope cards that I've been impressed with this set. I was not blown away on the spoiler like I was for other Modern Horizon sets. This is technically a, a Modern Horizon set. It is that release zone. But yeah, pretty stoked about the impact it's had so far. All right. So number two that we want to talk about is fourth Aorlingas, which is red, white, X sorcery. You create X 2-2 red human knight creature tokens with trample and haste and... Whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to one or more players this turn, you become the Monarch. That's right, they did print a card that can allow you to take the Monarch on turn one. That is legacy legal. Yeah, this card, not only Lord of the Rings new set, Lord of the Rings commander adjacent product. So buried deep within the spoiler season. I had no idea this card existed until I saw somebody next to me casting it in Baltimore. Uh, the red white stompy deck that made top four maybe top eight uh they they were somewhere i think they were top eight they had four of these across their 75 if i remember correctly and yeah this card is nutto yeah so i'll i'll dive in here because i i streamed with this over the weekend this is a weird card because it serves different roles at different points in the game on turn one or turn two this is just make a knight or two become the monarch and try to ride that out but towards the mid to end game this is a bullshit fireball that comes with monarch a lot of times these initiative decks kind of flood out in the mid game have roughly six mana and nothing to do with it maybe they have one creature in play they get a lot of damage in early with a seasoned dungeoneer or a caves of chaos adventurer that gets in and maybe you get to forge and trap and then you stall out this is haste damage that can clean up planeswalkers, take the monarch, and be a fireball. But as a fireball where for every value of X you put in, you are getting two power on it spread out over multiple bodies that tramples over token blockers from things like Staff of the Storyteller. Uh, this card is quite good. Risky, but good. Yeah, this one... And I was thinking, I've, I play way less of this style of deck than you do, and I probably will never cast this card in paper unless it's in Commander, uh, <laughs> based on my play style. But I've played enough Stompy that sometimes you cast uh, the the front half of the Emeria Land, whatever that one's called, the seven mana make two angels. And if you're getting there, this card is a better rate of return on that same mana you put into it. Obviously, it's a, a Boros spell, not a mono white spell, so you need red, but a lot of those decks are doing it anyway. And there's that tension when you're trying to cast your angel spell, where it's like, oh, I got six mana, uh, a mana source is pretty good, I get to make the angels, I can unlock this. You can do this for five, you can do it for six, you can do it for seven, you can do it for ten. Our genuine mana sink is pretty sick. And I'm already thinking about it, and... This is in the Jeskai Wedge. Maybe I will cast this card once in a while as a sideboard option because I could see it live there too, but I will not be putting this in a Chalice of the Void deck, though I will be losing to it out of those decks often. One thing that I've noticed that this card has sort of consolidated the initiative decks in Legacy. For a while, we had red-green, we had Boros. I even ran into black-white initiative a few times. I think that this card is just going to say initiative moving forward is Boros themed because this is a reason to be in the Boros wedge rather than splashing for the black cards or green or whatever. So it does some really interesting things to the mana in two different ways. Number one, it is a reasonable card you can play that imprints under Chrome Mox for both of your colors, and it can also pitch to both Fury and Solitude. Um, Solitude is pretty much always there. Fury is a little rough to pitch cast in a lot of these builds. But it also has tension with one of the best lands in that deck, which is Cavern of Souls. And wanting to play this red-white card early on in the game means you want more copies of Plateau, which might be coming at the cost of Cavern of Souls, meaning you can't necessarily jam the initiative creatures as freely. It's not like this is a strict upgrade to everything that already exists in the deck. Yeah, if we have a Cavern of Souls for something that gets Fluster Stormed, that would be okay with me. Just with my general play pattern versus this deck. Let's do more of that. Um, one more note here. Please note that in some weird fringe scenarios, you can cast this like post-combat, or you can cast this and not attack if introducing the Monarch to the game is something that is not profitable for you. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, it is only if you hit, then the monarch happens. So yeah, cool. 
yeah it it came up in one of my rounds where i just like could not introduce the monarch to the game against my control opponent who had an evasive flyer but i needed to cast it still so yeah that's that's kind of like the old vintage uh cast your spells in second main in case you need to defend them with mana drain trick uh because you don't want to take a bunch of mana burn in your second main if you win a mana drain fight in your first so same kind of thing cool stuff or uh carpet of flowers versus leovold comes up a few times in in the format so there's one more card that we kind of identified as the really hot stuff from this set and it is the marquee card of the set the one ring a four mana legendary artifact that's indestructible when it enters the battlefield if you cast it if very important if if you cast it you gain protection from everything until your next turn at the beginning of your upkeep you lose one life for each burden counter on the one ring and you can tap the one ring and put a burden counter on it then draw a card for each burden counter on the one ring a lot of rules text there for a very neat piece of colorless protection slash card draw. Yeah, this card is kind of a banger. Like all the words on this card are good, except the one where you take damage in your upkeep or lose life in your upkeep. This this I've seen this in like Tron shells in modern already. I've seen it in Karn wishboards anywhere that Karn is legal. It's also just pay off 9 through 12 in the colorless storm stompy, uh, whatever Mystic we're calling Forge the Mystic decks. Forge deck. Yeah, Mystic Forge. It goes the hell off with Paradox Engine, a card that is in some builds of the Mystic Forge Storm deck as well. Because an important thing that I did not understand when I first read this card is at the beginning of your upkeep, you lose one life for each burden counter on the one ring. And then separately, tap, put a burden counter on the one ring, draw a card for each burden counter on the one ring. The activation and card draw is not tied to the life loss directly. You can tap this thing once the turn you play it, draw a card, you lose a life in your next upkeep. Then you tap it to draw two cards, and then you've still only cost you one life. And then if you have any way to untap it, like a manifold key or heaven forbid paradox engine, three cards, then four then five and you've still only lost one life to this thing and if you can get it out of play like if you somehow have to pass the turn out after that you can get it out of play it's a legend just play another one keep the new one that doesn't have any burden on it or sacrifice it to something or other uh there's this card is wildly abusable and the way it's templated you can be extremely burdened without much life if you're going for a big payoff turn I'm going to be a negative Nancy for a second. I agree that this card is ultra sweet. I'm going to reveal a secret that is often kept behind the curtain. Content creators sometimes play cards that they don't think are actually good or the hype cards that they don't think are actually good. And I think that the one ring, while being ultra sweet right now, but I think that it's a little bit of creator hype season. Right now on Magic Online, as of earlier today, this card was 125 tickets. How are you yet, which is where I personally buy my cards, sold out at $150. This card is not that good. Uh, it's ultimately a much better JD Tomb. It's a four mana artifact that draws cards. Yeah, it gives you protection, and over time you're not paying four mana per turn to draw cards. I understand. But I don't think that this card is going to be format defining in Modern or Legacy for an extended period of time. I think it's going to see play. I think it's going to be sweet but I don't think it's going to be something that the formats wrap themselves around right now. And if you follow a lot of these content personalities, they're like, this card is broken modern, the best card ever printed. Ah, and I, I, I just, I don't believe that. I think it's sweet. I think it's good. It's just not format defining. I think this card is archetype empowering, if not archetype defining in at least three formats. I agree with you that this card is probably currently overhyped, but it's so easy to break this. Like, in Vintage, you have a land that just taps for three mana to cast this. This is a very easy turn one play. In Legacy, you've still got Ancient Tomb, City of Traders to power this out, and there's already an existing Mystic Forge shell. That deck already has a couple of consistent pilots who put up pretty good challenge results with it. And now, like, the training wheels are off and they get to play with an actual real toy. I've got a bookmarked tweet here. Somebody was testing it. 
uh, it was punishing MTGO on Twitter, had a crazy run with the deck list and a triple paradox engine shell. Uh, and uh, I think this is a challenge result where they went X2. That's pretty damn good. Yeah, uh, Punishing Waterfalls is one of those people who can play any disaster of a pile. Uh, they kind of remind me of Brian Kelly in Vintage, who uh, they're willing to do crazy things, but they understand the format and what they need to do with all their moving pieces in a way that doesn't hamper their success. Uh, unconventional, but wise, I guess is what I would call it. That is exactly the type of person I'd want to be looking to to see if some bonkers new card actually has a home and then how do i take punishing's weirdo list and make it into a a regular list and does it still carry the same weight but yeah the the early results are exciting i i don't believe this is the clickbait that this is going to change every format it's in i i don't think it's once again i'm not readying the ban hammer it's just a powerful thing you can do for four mana and the longer the game goes probably the better it is i think the biggest thing this sort of deck has going against it is that eight cast is already really fucking good and everyone is already respecting the hell out of artifact hate with you know their meltdowns null rods stony silence whatever you're playing in your specific deck so i think you get caught up in a lot of flack and hate for other things but notably the one ring itself is indestructible uh, which is definitely going to come up. And luckily, Red got a new Exile-based artifact removal card that we'll talk about in a minute. One place where I am excited to play the One Ring, and it hasn't been mentioned yet, is in Modern Twiddlestorm, a deck that's already playing a bunch of untap effects because naturally you need them. I do think that is one home where it naturally slides in. I also think the Mystic Forge Key Vault decks make a lot of sense. I just don't think that those decks are format defining like i think that deck got a really good upgrade but it's just not going to dominate modern or legacy yeah i think the one ring existing brought that deck from tier 2.5 to tier 1.5 it's certainly a thing now but it's still like phil said the one ring itself being indestructible helps a little but everyone and their mother eight cast is the best performing deck by the numbers and has been for a while and if you're not packing your meltdowns and serenities and force of vigors and null rods, what are you even doing in this format? And that deck is going to catch a lot of strays from that. One really quick note in SCG Baltimore, there was not that many people playing eight cast. I sort of expected it to be one of the most popular decks in the room. And there were certainly some of it, but for it being a no reserve deck, I just was a little surprised that there wasn't more of it. Yeah. Uh, I did not see eight cast from anywhere I was sitting throughout the entire day. I saw one Delver next to me for a couple of rounds, never played against it, and I didn't see A-Cast once. So the, the A-Cast Delver MTG Goldfish metagame compared to what you actually run into in a paper tournament, once again, we're seeing different things. I would like to talk about this next card, though, because this is the one I'm most hyped about. This fits into the type of decks I like. I mean, I like Bowmasters, don't get me wrong, I'm very hyped about that. But among the, the other stuff, we got Delighted Halfling. This is one green for a 1-2 conveniently built to survive orcish bowmasters it's a halfling citizen creature taps to add a colorless or tap to add one man of any color spend this man only to cast a legendary spell and that spell can't be countered that is a lot of exciting words ramping on a birds of paradise and the spells uncounterable and right now the best performing blue deck is zenith and blue zenith is a deck that contains Grist, Leovold, Minskinbu, Atraxa, just at baseline. And then you can add whatever else you want. Uh, turn two, Uncounterable, Teferi, Time Reveler, or Narset. Planeswalkers are legendary these days. That's how the rules work. And it doesn't say creature. It says legendary spell. Uh, this deck is truly terrifying if their turn one halfling sticks. And if it doesn't, uh, you're down a removal spell for whatever creatures are coming next. I think a legend-skewed build of blue zenith or even just some sort of bant shell that tops out at minskin boo and is really exciting i know that we're primarily a legacy podcast but in modern i play a lot of living end this week i've run into the issue of turn one delighted halfling into turn two to fairy and the way that living end is constructed is it's a lot like legacy doomsday where you're 
answer isn't removing it off the table, it's removing it from the stack. You have things like force of negation, for example, or grief, but when they have turn one delighted halfling into Teferi and you can't force of negation it, you sort of just lose. And I've been thinking a lot about that and deck construction in general for modern, but it's also directly applicable to legacy in the case of something like Doomsday, where maybe it's not Teferi, maybe it's Narset, but both Teferi and Narset pretty good against doomsday are they game winning not necessarily but it's another thing that they have to deal with and delighted halfling makes that happen it's a pretty good upgrade to birds of paradise i am less excited about this card than i think a lot of other people but i'm always preaching the like good mana is good train so hard and like i look at this and i think about myself playing blue decks and oftentimes wanting to like cast a ponder into some other spell or something like that and a lot of times delighted halfling is not actually going to be a true piece of mana acceleration for spells that you need to cast so there are going to be these situations where it is going to be worse than a birds of paradise or a noble hierarch or whatever but it has exceptional upside in blue mirrors where the uncounterability portion does matter yeah this kind of reminds me of modern humans at the height of that deck that was a deck built on cavern of souls uh and ancient ziggurat and all these five color lands that came with caveats and it was usually held together barely by noble hierarch and aether vial and there were games where like your noble hierarch gets bolted or your aether vial gets countered and then you just don't cast a spell and you die and i think delighted halfling decks are gonna get a taste of that but the fact that there is a fail case of tap for colorless that can cast a zenith, you're still doing some amount of ramping. I think that is a nice backup plan. And being 1-2 over 1-1 one, one, or 0-1 in Bowmaster's world is pretty good. Next up is Cast Into the Fire, uh, which was one that I totally passed over during spoiler season, not thinking it was strong enough, and then it ended up having some great situational uses. This is one on red for an instant. You get to choose one. It deals one damage to each of up to two target creatures, or you exile target artifact. Within the format that is Legacy, Cauldra Complete is an indestructible artifact, as is the One Ring, and exiling both of those is super relevant. And as the last half an hour of conversation about Orcish Bowmasters shows, dealing one damage to a couple of creatures can be really strong. Phil, I don't even think that's the best format for this card. When you look at Pauper, the mono red deck has been playing Shattering Blow because it exiles the bridges because those are indestructible. But now in Pauper, they get not only a card that exiles bridges, a card that kills Spellstutter Sprite plus another fairy. I'm sorry, Brian. I know that's going to bother you deep in your core. But this card is a multi-format all-star. I tried to buy them the day that they were released on Magic Online, and there were two tickets each for a common out of the latest set. I'm sure they've dropped since then, but two tickets on opening day for Casting of the Fire blew my mind. Yeah, people knew. Everything you said hits. Uh, this is in a braid is uh, an eternal staple to this day. Just the ability to do this or that, where this and that are two things that a deck needs to do and generally don't come on the same card. Casting of the Fire, just another one of now many options you can decide how you want to interact with the things you want to interact with on your modal spell and this is a good one since we mentioned popper i'm going to go a little out of order here i want to mention improvised club which is also seeing play in the mono red popper deck this is one in a red as an additional cost to cast this spell sacrifice an artifact or creature to deal four damage to any target that can go to the face that can sacrifice your experimental synthesizer or one of any number of artifacts that has a benefit for going to the graveyard, your, you know, Icker Wellspring sorts of things. This card is amazing in Pauper. Yeah, that card is really sweet. Big fan. All right. Kind of going back to our normal order we had in our show notes here, let's talk about the ring tempting you with Call of the Ring. This is one in black for an enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, the ring tempts you. Whenever you choose a creature as your ring bearer, you may pay two life. If you do, draw a card. So this is kind of like a two-mana Phyrexian Arena where you pay a little bit more life 
but it comes with some combat upsides. I don't think we're going to go through the entire The Ring Tempts You thing. I think we should. All right. We, we have listeners that might not know, and I think it's just good to cover our ground. If I didn't pre-release, I would not know. So you want to do this, Phil? Each time The Ring Tempts You, you essentially level up The Ring. You choose a Ring Bearer. The first time The Ring Tempts You, your Ring Bearer is legendary and can't be blocked by creatures with greater power. So for a small creature, this is some form of evasion. Note, within the confines of Legacy, Legacy? Legacy, your ring bearer is legendary means that it can be bounced by Caracas, either for good or for bad, so keep that in mind. The second time the ring tempts you, you can choose a new ring bearer, or you can keep it the same, and whenever your ring bearer attacks, you get to loot, draw a card, discard a card. The third time, when your ring bearer becomes blocked by a creature, that creature's controller sacrifices at the it at the end of combat. So at this point, it's both difficult to block, and it kills whatever will eventually block it. And it loots when you attack. All of these stack on top of each other. And the final time, the fourth time, when your ring bearer deals combat damage to a player, each opponent loses three life. So it's hard to block, kills things that it blocks. If you don't block it, you get an extra lightning bolt worth of damage. Uh, this is a slow but powerful mechanic. And while Call of the Ring might not be a format staple in many of the ways that these other cards we've already talked about will be, this is a powerful option. I've seen it see play in a Death Shadow deck, in a Demir Control deck. Um, that's where I've seen it so far. One thing I would like to point out here is let's say that you lose your Ring Bear. I mean, creature removal exists, but you've leveled up three or four times. Once you are tempted by the ring again, your new ring bearer just instantly gets all four levels. You don't have to level all the way back up. Your new ring bearer just acknowledges that your ring has these powers. Also notably here, kind of in a similar but different vein, if you don't have a creature when you play this, you don't get to choose something as your ring bearer. So the ring can still tempt you and you can still level it up. But the card draw portion of this starts with whenever you choose a creature as your ring bearer. So this isn't just in a vacuum, two life draw a card every turn. It doesn't work like that. If you have one creature and you choose to keep that creature your ring bearer, do you gain two life or do you have to move it around? So you you can choose the same creature and still pay the two life to draw a card. Uh, this card seems like a reasonable draw engine. And another thing, which maybe other people's brains aren't going to do this, but mine sure did. Everybody's responsible for their own ring. If your opponent is being tempted by the ring and so are you, you can have a ring bearer and they have a ring bearer and your each of your rings can be on different levels. It's not like the initiative or monarch where if the ring tempts me, now I have the ring and you don't. It it is it's your own thing. It took me a second for my brain to make sense of when I was playing pre-release. Yeah. I believe that if you use a threaten effect to steal someone else's ring bearer, you don't get the benefit of your opponent's ring. You get the benefits of your own ring. So if you don't have a ring and you steal someone else's ring bearer, it's just whatever the card is. I literally saw that come up watching somebody's pre-release game. I believe it's the blue Aragorn. Uh, I, I think it's Aragorn anyway that control magic somebody's creature. And they're like, Judge, do I get these ring powers? Like that came up. I, I didn't stick around for the answer, but I thought it was pretty interesting. The flavor of the ring and how it's executed is not intuitive because in the movie there is one. The whole thing is taking the ring from Frodo and Frodo keeping the ring. So the idea that two people on opposite sides can each be holding the ring and bashing into each other, kind of a flavor fail. Also, the more that you're tempted by the ring, the stronger you get, and there's no drawback. The one ring itself, the card that we've already talked about, gains burden counters and hurts you when you use it, but being tempted by the ring is just getting better and better the more tempted you are, which is also kind of a weird thing. So just be aware that this mechanic, wherever you encounter it, is not intuitive to what you think it might be. Next up, we have Council's Deliberation. Love this. So obsessed. You would be. I I am. Let me read it. Let me read it. I'm so excited. Quick shout out to Phil Blackman, who was an early adopter of this card on his podcast, The uh, Eternal Dirtles. Uh, Phil was very quick to recognize the power of this with Preordain, a known unplayable card in Legacy. I'm mostly just a hater. Brian, Mike is yours. Okay. Council's Deliberation. One in a blue instant. Draw a card. Off to a good start. Whenever you scry, if you control an island, you may exile Council's Deliberation from your graveyard if you do draw a card. 
This card is, it's think twice, but the flashback is free. You just have to scry at some point in your in your existence. And this is the type of thing that uh, if you have like Castle Vantress or, or something like that, there's probably a cheaper version to do this with in Legacy, but this can set off miracles on your opponent's turn. You could draw cards move stuff around like preordained become scry to draw a card draw a card uh, just and and all of that like you don't even have to cast it on the front if there's some way to mill this into your own graveyard or surveil like what cards in dicey have surveil that's crazy yeah right if there was only a red one drop that's played in every deck that could play it uh that could put this in your graveyard for free but yeah it takes a little bit of setup but the payoff is pretty big i've played against this card once i haven't gotten to play with it yet and it buried me, and I was so excited. Are there any other legacy playable cards that scry other than Preordain? I did see somebody in a Magic Online League playing Opt, and I was like, there's got to be something else that's better than Opt. I haven't done a deep dive to know what enables this. I know there are a number of Planeswalkers that scry. Preordain is probably the best one. Uh, there, It's tacked onto all sorts of spells. Like, there's Cancel plus Scry 1 is a card, like counter-target spell Scry 1. Uh, these are probably all bad ideas, but... If we have to think about it this hard, the answer is probably no. The question as asked is tricky, because cards that are already played in Legacy that say Scry, no, it's preordained. Legacy playable, if we're willing to do a little bit of work to kick on a draw engine, uh, that's a Scryfall search that I haven't done yet. So there is one card that I bought when the set released, and granted, Brian mentioned Castle Vantress. This is a similar vein. The card Rivendell, it's a legendary land. It enters the battlefield tapped unless you control a legendary creature. Taps for a blue mana. And then for one and a blue, you can tap it, scry two. You can only activate this ability if you control a legendary creature. When I first was looking at this, I was like, oh, it's so easy to have a legend in blue. It's just Teferi or Narset. Legendary creature in blue is a little bit tougher, at least off the top of my head. If you can find some way to find or put a legendary creature into your blue deck then I think Rivendell becomes a lot more interesting. Fiddle Thip. It's the sort of thing that you might see in, in, in an Esper Vile deck at some point or something. Right, yeah, that, that seems like a stretch. Oh, I played against Behold the Multiverse in the the deck that I played against that had Council's Liberation. Uh, that's a, a four mana instant, three and a blue, uh, scry two, draw two, and it has Fertel for one and a blue. Pay for it in installment plans. Uh, that's also a cool way to trigger miracles because that doesn't need any other setup. You could just draw to at an instant speed uh, that's a pretty sweet one obviously we're deep into blue bullshit territory where those of you with uh dragon's rage channeler in your deck are just like okay good luck with that you know tendrils of agony uh but this is the type of place that i like to be phil mentioned esper vile charming prince one of the words on that is scry two uh maybe there's something there i don't know uh again this would require a deep scryfall search that i have not yet done but i am excited about this card the next one is one that I'm surprisingly not excited about, even though it's in my wheelhouse. This is Boromir, Warden of the Tower. Two and a white for a 3-3 human soldier with vigilance. Whenever an opponent casts a spell, if no mana was spent to cast it, counter that spell. And you can sacrifice Boromir to give creatures you control indestructible until end of turn, and the ring tempts you. This is seeing a little bit of play in initiative decks, but I'm just not super excited about this like a lot of times initiative decks ignore free spells like force of will anyway through something like cavern of souls and i don't necessarily want to be giving my creatures indestructible in legacy as a lot of the removal that i care about is going to exile rather than just kill them this is around you'll see it uh before we we get totally lost um one of the the rooms of the initiative dungeon is scry 2 so shout shout out back to Council's Deliberation. I have been putting some initiative bullets into fair blue decks here and there. That's a thing. So just while well, before somebody yells at us for forgetting probably the most played Legacy Scry thing, it's in the initiative dungeon somewhere. I'm reaching, but let me reach. So on the note of blue cards, Stern Scolding was one that got hyped up a ton during spoiler season, and I have not seen a single copy of it cast yet. This is one blue mana for an instant counter-target creature spell with power or toughness two or less. Hey, does that hit Orcish Bowmasters? Uh, it does. Oh, uh, Spell Pierce doesn't. Can I call a Flavor Judge? Oh no, it's power or toughness two or less, not mana value. So this will always hit Delver or DRC on the way down. It will never hit Murktide Regent. 
You can't even call a flavor judge if it, they spent two mana on it because it'll always be big. But power or toughness two or less. So by definition, anything that could be tutored by any recruiter is fair game. It, obviously, you have to have this first and hold mana up before the creature shows up. They're just clipping a Thalia on the draw uh, against death and taxes. Pretty cool. There's a lot to like about this card, but I think it is situational in a way that better cards like Spell Snare are. And those cards don't see play currently. That's kind of how I feel about this. Next up is one I saw in, I think, a 5-0 tweet today. Moria Marauder, which is red-red for a 1-1 goblin warrior with double strike. Whenever a goblin or orc you control deals combat damage to a player, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. When I first read this card, I thought that it was a throwback to Warren Instigator, which is similar in the fact of most of its mana value and stats, except Warren Instigator allows you to double Goblin Lackey, where this says any Goblin or Orc you control deals combat damage to a player, which I think is the big separation between Moria Mauler, or I'm sorry, Moria Marauder and Warren Instigator. So they saw the weakness of Warren Instigator and then decided to correct it here. And I think that's pretty sweet for those of you that like the goblin type. Yeah, this is cool with the Runvelt Horde Master that we got a couple sets ago where whenever a goblin dies, you do this effect. That one plus this one, you get it going in, you get it coming out. So you're going to see some extra cards, which is the last thing I want my goblin's opponent to do when I'm trying to get control of their, their board. So I can see this one being pretty spicy yeah it's it's one of those things that has probably exactly one home when it's good it will be very good but it's pretty narrow um so i think we have one more card and then i think we're going to talk about a cycle and probably call it a day um this is a card that is shaking up pauper a little bit lemboss which is two mana for an artifact food when it enters the battlefield scry one and then draw a card you can sacrifice lemboss to gain three life and then when it's put into the graveyard, it gets shuffled into its owner's library. This is just another nice colorless way to gain some life, get a little bit of card advantage, and especially in Popper, where Mono Red and Affinity are very strong decks, having something that can gain you some life and then go back into your deck so you can draw it again later. It doesn't really give you inevitability, but it gives you a nice bit of breathing room. It also scries one. Shout out Council's Liberation. Yeah, colorless scrying, colorless selection and card draw is always nice. Yeah, I mean, scry one and then draw a card on a two mana artifact is already pretty effective. We've already upgraded the Elsewhere Flask and Prophetic Prism kind of nonsense that people play, just decks that just need a piece of material in play and also a cantrip. We've already upgraded that and then it has all these other words on it. It's pretty cool future Bosch and roll video i love second breakfast and it's just a limbus video with uh council's deliberation yep those are those are all the cards in my deck uh, i four intuitions to put a bunch of council's deliberations in the graveyard and then we go off from there the final thing that we wanted to talk about tonight is a series of land cyclers uh these exist at common and for one mana you can land cycle them to search your library for a basic of a given type and they have a decent sized body attached to them um, Bryant, you're really excited about this cycle, so why don't you start talking about these? I think that these are truly impressive cards. They're all a nickel each. The black one sees play in Pauper and something like Reanimator or Cycle Storm, and Modern, the Ent and the Oliphant are both already making huge impacts in Living End. Living End won the showcase. It put two in the top eight of the NRG event, did really well in the challenge. Like Living End just went from tier 1.5 to 1 and i wouldn't be surprised if it ends up in s tier i'm a huge believer in this cycle of creatures the blue one isn't a creature i think that they recognized that it would have been too good in living end and they decided to make it a sorcery that draws three cards instead that said popper players are loving it it's seeing play in decks like fairies but more importantly in decks like familiars where you can reduce the cost of this five mana draw three and make it much more of an unfair card with your sunscape familiar the only one that i haven't seen play yet is the white one that whenever it enters it anthems all of your creatures but it's also just a three three fly first striker give it time i'm sure it's going to see play and pop or white weenie which is probably up phil's alley yeah cycling for one ash barons has been a popper staple for a long time this has higher upside than ash barons in the the times that i'm like playing ash barons as a colorless land just to hit my land drop pretty slim 
And I guess that's a big cost if you need that. Having concentrate as the fail case or the the top deck it later, that's pretty good. Also, these creatures are pretty large. Like Generous Ent is a 5-7 reach, which means that it fights Murktide region a lot of the time in modern. Uh, the Oliphant is a 6-4 trample that whenever it attacks, it gives another one of your creatures plus 2-0 and trample. These are huge creatures that if you can somehow get them into play, will take over the game. All right. Do we have any final thoughts here about kind of this set and its early impact as we're kind of through about the first week of assorted formats using these Lord of the Ring cards? This set is ultra sweet, but don't go spending $11,000 on cracking booster packs looking for the one ring, one of one. It's not a wise investment. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that how quickly and how dramatically the paradigm has shifted around Orcish Bowmaster specifically, and I'll have an eye on that one to see how I feel about it in a month. I think that this set in general has some impact and some cool stuff and some deck improvers, some archetype tools without really breaking anything. Uh, like our last Modern Horizon set, uh, MH2 to this day, uh, Urza Saga, Fury, Solitude, etc., etc. Uh, and that's just the cards that didn't get banned. That was a huge shifting impact on our formats, all of them, basically all cards where that set is legal. And I think that this straight to modern printing is in a nicer little sweet spot. And it has a commander attachment. So some of the stuff went straight to Legacy. And I think this is a nice zone that they landed in on these straight to eternal products i think my favorite thing here is the excitement level these cards have been fun in limited they've been fun in all of the assorted decks that i'm playing here despite some of these cards being very good they seem appropriately costed for the set the things they do they're not cheating on costs the same way that say the elemental cycle did uh and for that reason i've been really enjoying playing with and against these cards it just feels like they, they hit the groove right this time. Agreed. I've heard Limited is really good as well. Uh, I did one pre-release. I haven't drafted it yet, but I'm hearing good things. I bought all the Commander Precons. I already cracked the Hop at one and started ordering cards to upgrade it. That's just a cool deck that I could see myself tinkering with and making a forever deck. Just Abzan Hobbits. I'm into it. And we're, we're, we're talking about cards that are shifting legacy paradigms, and we're talking about a new forever EDH deck with abs and hobbits. So th that's a good range for a set to cover uh, with someone as crotchety and old as me. Shout out wizards for this one. 